This is episode 127 of the Creative Giant Show. I'm Charlie Gilkey. Thanks so much for joining me today. In this episode, Jennifer Lapin joins me and we dive into the behind the scenes of how I get stuff done. We cover why I joined the Army and how I apply that to my work, my workout routines, what my self-care routines look like, what my tech setup looks like, what my daily routine is, and what my biggest challenge is. To be honest, I'm really not comfortable with these types of episodes, but she wanted to do it and readers had questions, and so there we go. If you like behind-the-scenes episodes and sort of making of stuff, you'll dig this conversation. Ready? Let's do this. Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Before we jump into the interview, I just want to introduce Jennifer Laban. Jen is the owner of Terp Associates, LLC, a team who seeks to grow talent and ignite potential. She specializes in implementing high-impact and high-value employee development solutions, and she has an extensive background in developing and facilitating content and leadership skills, as well as mentorship programs. Jen has helped individuals achieve greater potential through classroom training, long-term development programs, online modules, social media presentations, and individual development plans. Jen is also the author of Mentoring Programs That Work, a unique approach to creating sustainable and scalable programs. She also wrote Real World Training Design, a visual quick guide for creating exceptional results with tight budgets and timelines. She's been published all over the web in places like the ASTD Handbook 2nd Edition, the Pfeiffer Annual, 100 Ways to Make Training Active, How to Write Terrific Training Materials, and the ASTD Trainer's Toolkit app. Besides learning and development, Jen is passionate about scuba diving, the environment, and spending time with family. Jen lives near Baltimore, Maryland with her amazing husband, daughters, and a turtle named Godzilla. Hello, Creative Giants. This episode is coming from a somewhat unusual space. I was talking to Jen and she asked, hey, Charlie, have you ever considered doing something like the show Cortex? To which case I was like, I don't know what Cortex is. Um, We talked a little bit about it and I just said, hey, do you want to host a show as if it were Cortex? And with a a momentary bit of hesitation, but then a resounding yes. She said yes. And that is how we're here today. So Jen, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to you as the host of this episode. Thanks, Charlie. Yeah, I'm really excited. Um, What I'm hoping to do today is dig a little into what makes Charlie Gilkey tick. Uh, You've got a nice community out on the campfire and beyond. And a lot of us are really curious uh, about what makes you go. So that's where this is coming from. Usually on the Creative Giant Show, you like to ask your guests about their origin stories. So I think that's a great place to start. Can you share yours? So which origin story, like, you know, the 1980 (laughs) origin story or the 2007 origin story? Where are we going with this? Well, people were really interested the whole way back, but let's start um, with before you decided to join the military. Like, how did that happen and where, tell me about your military experience. Okay, so I was born into a military family. So my, um, I have counting, well, I have 11 aunts and uncles, right? Um, so my dad makes 12 of his brothers and siblings, my brothers and sisters. And I think all but like eight of them went into the military. And so um, 
you know, it is in our blood in that way. And I grew up, my dad raised us as if we were little soldiers because he was a sergeant and a very big thing. He, he's a veteran of Korea and, and things like that. So it very much grew up as a part of who I was. I joined the Boy Scouts, as we know, um, and the Boy Scouts is, as we know, a paramilitary organization. So you learn a lot about, you, you kind of get pulled into that. Um, but what I found for me is actually, it's not one of those things that it was a hesitantly, like, I've got to do this, but it's actually where I thrived and shined right? Um, just with the just-in-time leadership that you get into, the really cool sort of projects that you get into. Um, I'm a social and sort of pack animal, even though I need my introverted recharge time, but I just love doing stuff with people. And so, between sports and Boy Scouts and growing up in the military, it was just one of those things where like, um, it was important. But I also, um, whether it came from my parents or whether it's just something I, I grew up with through other things, I actually have a... Um, pretty big sense of civic responsibility. And so joining the military was also an extension of that. I believe as citizens, we have more of a responsibility than just showing up and voting and complaining every four years. Right. Um, and so um, th that also tied into it. And so it was my way of, of doing that. I went to the United States military Academy at West point when I was in, when I was 18, which was a really prestigious thing. I mean, you got to think where I'm coming from Arkansas. There's not that many candidates that went to or cadets that went from Arkansas, but also looking at my background being multiracial and poor, it's very unusual for someone to do that, but went there um, very quickly realized that the full-time pathway was not for me. At least that was not the pathway for me. So slid into my undergraduate education, got my bachelor's, and as a senior, joined um, the Army National Guard. Again, civic responsibility, just going to do my thing. This was before Iraq II, and this was before it was public knowledge that the um, reserve components were going to be an operational force as opposed to a strategic reserve. So um, very shortly found myself um, being trained to go to Iraq II. Did that, um, the good or the best and the worst time of my life in a lot of different ways, um, but came back and then um, within the reserve components, there were certain types of jobs, I won't go into details, where you can work like a three-quarter time position, right? You're not full-time, but you're not just the normal part-time. And so I did that for, um, you know, pretty much as I was getting my, as I was back in school, getting my graduate degree in philosophy. And so I'd spend roughly half my time um, in scholarly studies, and then the other half of my time doing military stuff. So, um, how so? How long were you a part of the National Guard? Eight years. Eight years. And what? Where did you go afterwards? So I um, I resigned my commission in 2010. So resigning my commission, I was a commissioned officer. You know, like lieutenants, captains, so on and so forth. Um, and so I resigned in 2010 and I did not go, I did not go anywhere else after that. So, um, that's how that worked out. Okay. So some of your community was wondering what routines or structures do you still carry forward with you that you gained from that experience of being in the military? Hmm. That's an interesting one. Um, the one, I'll tell you the one that I don't because it's the most obvious. Um, there's very much a integration of physical activity with the, with the army and with the military in general. So getting up every morning and working out and running and things like that, that's one I wish I did more than I do, right? I exercise, you know, two or three times a week, but not every day, like 
you would in there. And there's just such, um, it was a general patent, I believe, that says an active mind cannot exist in an inactive body. And that's one of those truisms where like, it just comes up over and over again. Um, mainly though, the being in the military, especially being a veteran and things like that, being a military leader is another one. You learn a lot of resiliency and a lot of like internal coping strategies um, because most of your day is going sideways. There's like very rarely when things are going the way that you planned, right? <laughs> and so I, I, it's not so much a practice, but it's, it's just a, um, for lack of better words, just a, a um, ability to be more resilient and in, in times of uncertainty and change and duress, right? That's just one of those things you carry with you. Another major thing though, and, and we sort of alluded to this before the call, is the Army teaches you, the military, I should say though, but I'll say the army, the army teaches you a lot about frameworks and codifying or standardizing information. Because when you're out in a busy um, drill or you're out in a busy battlefield, you don't have time to create everything from scratch. You've got to have frameworks that you can go through there. So there's the nine line medevac. There's the how to evaluate a casualty. There's how you give operations. Basically, everything you want to do, there is a standard procedure for doing it. Um, And they do that for two reasons. One is for the individual soldier. You don't have to have all of the cognitive overhead of trying to figure out how to do everything every like time and time again. But the other reason you do that is you can take one person from one unit you know, anywhere and you can put them somewhere else and everybody uses the same language. They use the same frameworks. So you can walk into a team and automatically know the lingo. You can automatically know what to say. You can automatically know where things fit. And so from a leader's perspective or from a soldier's perspective, that's really reassuring because not only are you going through the uncertainty of new people and new missions and all this new stuff, but you know, if you show up in the right place, the right uniform and speak what and do what you've been trained to do, everything will work out. Right. And um, I don't know, there, there are days, Jenna, probably I've told you, there are days I miss it. Right. Because there's a, you have one job really. Right. <laughs> and um, the life of a creative entrepreneur is never just one job. Um, and so um, as a, as a military leader, especially when I was in a command position or leadership position, you have basically two main jobs. Um, accomplish the current mission and prepare the future force. Everything can be boiled down to those two things. Um, and you don't have to figure out how you're going to sell things and what you're going to create and who's going to do what this, everything is figured out and you just have that one job in that position to do. So, you know, that's the weird thing is that when people think about what it would be like to be a soldier, think about what it would be like to deploy and things like that, there's a lot of like stress and overwhelm about that, but really get down to it. Um, there's also a lot of structure. Um, there's also a lot of fitting in. And this is one of those reasons why deployed soldiers have such a hard time coming back into civilian life because they've been a part of this team. Everyone knew what was doing. You knew where you fit in the hierarchy. You knew what you were going to get paid. You knew when you leave. You knew basically everything that you can know except for whether or not you're going to make it through that day. But besides that, right, you knew all the rest of it. And then you come home and it's like, oh, you got to go to work and then you got to take care of kids and you got to cut the grass and you got to like go to the grocery store and you got to do all of these things. And there's this sort of piece of being like, I can do this one thing, like, and I'm, I can be good at it. And that's enough. So, um, so thank you for sharing that. Cause I think that's really insightful as 
far as you have a lot of leanings towards, I, I say, you're a process geek, right? You're always looking at that. How do we, how do we improve those processes? And there is a lot of directions I'd love to go from that answer, but let me go here next. All righty. Um, which is how has that resiliency, that, that um, those internal coping mechanisms, that single or double, you know, focus, how has that helped you coach entrepreneurs? How have you ported that over? So one of the main things is rather than teaching um, people how to be sort of static specialists, um, is teaching especially founders and leaders how to be adaptable, versatile um, people that can pretty much slide anywhere they need to in their business, even if they have different roles. Because part of the challenge is um, as your business grows, you're going to have to change and adapt with it. And so if you're just, say, the subject matter expert, the tech subject matter expert, and that's just what you do, well, when it's time for you to start training someone else, you can't let that go, right? Because that's, that's so much. So it's, it's really focusing on agility and adaptability and growth mindset as opposed to being a um, static, like, we'll get you to be the best in the world about this one thing. Well, we know three years from now, the world is going to be different. So we got to teach you how to become routinely the best in the world, kick the ladder away and learn how to do it again. Right. And that's, that's the frustrating thing because on the one hand, we as people really value mastery. Um, on the other hand, to be a thriving entrepreneur and thriving creative person, you have to thrive on the adventure. And sometimes um, you got to let go of being masterful at something to really lean into that next growth journey. Um, and it, it just takes, I, I wish I had, you know, the seven step way to figure this out, but it really is all time for prudence, right? Is this the time where I need to let go of what I know and, and grow into something uncomfortable and unfamiliar? Or is this the time that I need to double down on what I'm masterful in and not take on that new project or that new thing? Hmm. Awesome. Thank you. By the way, I wrote down thrive on the adventure. I would read that post thrive on the adventure just for what it's worth. Uh, <laughs> uh, so another, uh, another thing you mentioned was the, uh, you said you work out like two to three times a week. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of interest actually in your, in your self care routines and preferences. So you want to share with us what is working out look like for Charlie Gilkey? Um, so what's made the biggest difference in my workout is actually working out with my good friend and conspirator, Corey Huff, right? So um, we have for the last few years been talking about wanting to work out more and we have different sort of, we have similar, um, similar health goals that came from different places. And so we were, we were hanging out and playing tabletop games one day and, and he was talking about this and I was talking about, I was like, wait a second, you have a, you have a subscription or a membership to 24 hour fitness too? And it was like, yep. And I was like, well, I have a, a membership to 24 hour fitness. There's one that's roughly like centered between us. And so we just started going and it makes it so much easier because it's not about the whole thought of, am I going, am I not going? Is it going to be finished? It's like show up and have fun with a friend. And, you know, so that's made a huge difference. So big love and appreciation to Corey um, um, because it's, it's just, it's been phenomenal over the last few months. Um, Besides that, it was just really making it a thing. Like, I got to get out and go do something. Not, what's to say? So when you're learning a new habit, there's always that point to where, like, you've got to force the habit, 
Right. And then afterwards, like when you don't do the thing, it actually bugs you more not to do it than to do it. And without having like the current routine that I have now, it was always one of those things where I stayed in that never, never land of not having the habit, but knowing that I needed the habit. Um, and so now more in the, like, if I don't do it, I miss it. Right. I'm like, something's wrong. My body, like my body tells me it's time to go. Um, and so now, so, so my exercise is split between, um, going and lifting with Corey at the gym. Um, also doing a lot of walking and, um, walking, hiking and things like that. Um, and then to be honest, I'll count things like for instance, um, Saturday and Sunday, I spent a whole lot of time cleaning out closets and lifting stuff and putting closets up and picking up cabinets and bookshelves and carrying stuff back and forth upstairs. I'm like, that counts, you know, (laughs) it's so more. So when we say exercise, you can think of movement, right. And making daily movement a part of what you do. But also what I would say on this one is I do a lot of micro movements in the sense where like, rather than thinking like, Oh, I've got to do this for like an hour a day. I'm like, okay, I'll get over there and do like 20 pushups or I'll get over there. I've got a kettlebell that's downstairs. And so when my coffee or tea or when the water for the coffee or tea is going, then I'll be doing some um, exercises on the kettlebell. Um, So I try to integrate movement throughout the day. And also I have a sit stand desk. So that gives me a lot of movement up and down and moving around. And I really learned that the hard way from when I was in a car accident in 2013, I believe Um, it got to the point to where I couldn't sit or stand static for too long. So I had to move. Um, And once I had to start moving is where I really changed. Like I didn't have the sit and stand desk in, but I figured like, you know what, like, it's, it's weird, Jen, the way that we work through decisions, right? Because we will spend more, t- more money on things that we don't use and we'll rarely use than on the things we sit in every day. Like for a lot of creative people, one of the things you spend the most time with is your chair, right? Mm-hmm. So the thought of going out and buying an $800 chair blows people's minds, but they have no problem spending, you know, Twelve hundred, thirteen, fifteen hundred dollars on an on an upgrade on their car. Well, how often? If unless you're commuting, right? How often are you in that car? Same with beds. Like if it touches my body for long parts of day, then I make sure that those things are good. So whether whether it's underwear or socks or the chair or the bed or the couch, like like invest in those places where you are, right? I, I'm sure there's someone out there who wants to, wants me to ask you about your underwear, but we're not going to go there. So we'll, we'll move on from there. <laughs> Under Armour switched okay. boxer briefs in the day, boxers at night. There you go. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, that's easy to pivot from. So. <laughs> hey. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's continue. Cause we talked about physical activity, um, but you're, the phrase that I've heard you refer to over and over again is self-care. So what else is in the self-care routine? So um, morning meditation. Meditation can look like actual guided meditation. Um, it can look like, you know, sitting with my Bose headphones on with the noise canceling and just sitting there for 30 minutes, not doing anything, just thinking and drinking tea. Um, tea is a major part of it. So we um, we have... Um, some really specially sourced teas that we have from a local, um, from a local collector and and sort of educator about tea. And so we use some of those and that's great. Um, You know, 
I don't think a lot of people would put this in self-care, but I do is, is being really intentional about screen time. And, um, after a certain period of time, I'm off work. Like I'm like off, off. And if clients know that like after that time, if you email me, if you call me, I'm not there because I am very much a, um, a guy who unifocuses a lot. And like, I want my, I want to be present where I am. And when I'm at work, I'm all at work. I'm having a great time. And when I'm on a client call, I'm on a client call. I'm having a great time. When I'm on an interview, I'm on an interview. I'm having a great time. But when I'm switched to something else, I'm all there too. And so being very intentional, for instance, um, I don't, I still don't have a mail um, app on my phone. Um, I only have Facebook on the phone because I need it for Facebook live and I don't want to download it every other time. And there's a, there's a few things in it, but I don't actually check from my phone. Um, if I had my say, and I actually tried this experiment, but um, the, if, if I have my say about it, my phone wouldn't really be a phone. It wouldn't be an external connection thing. It'd basically be a media device. Um, but it just, it's like 90% a media device, media meaning guided meditations, Spotify, Pandora, things like that. And like 10% an actual phone. Like, and, and that's what it's, that's what it is. And so being very intentional about that, Angela and I, when we're eating together, our phones are never on the table. We're never checking the phone. We're never, we're never competing with each other in the phone. Um, so yeah, just being very intentional about those types of things. Okay. Um, also I'll say on this one, um, we go through, so self still on the theme of self care. Mm-hmm. Um, some days we're very intentional about the types of activities we do because we realize that's a restive day for us. And so um, as much as possible, as little sort of business created creative or community stuff as possible. Um, Saturdays is usually around family time and being together. So it's, I think that, again, the theme here is finding space for those different parts of yourself to realize and not trying to be all on all the time everywhere. Um, and I know when I go through those pulses that it's actually wears me out really quickly. And I start feeling burnout when I don't have those spaces where like, I didn't get to sit for like two hours and do nothing. Right. I didn't get to meditate or I didn't get to chase Angela around the house for however long that takes. Right. Um, so these, these things are important. How often do you and Angela get to eat together? I mean, so you said Sundays are protected. So are your evenings also protected in a similar way? Protected, yeah. So we eat together most nights um, unless we're, we have different groups that we're part of. And so, and that's part of our relationship. And so if she's out with um, her girlfriends, then, you know, that's another matter. Um, but we make a point to at least have one meal every day with each other. Um, we try to have two though. Um, and that's the benefit of us both working in the same business from the same house is that we can, we can do that. Um, she tends to be really busy though, from like 11 to four doing whatever she does between errands and, and community stuff and um, some business management stuff. So she's out and about most of the days where I'm at home in the office working most of the days. And so um, lunch is a little sketchy most of the time, but breakfast and, and dinner we could typically do. Great. Uh, all right. So um, you mentioned somewhere in there about your phone. Mm-hmm. What kind of phone do you have? I have an iPhone 6S, I believe. Yes. So are you a Mac person all the way? Is your whole system Mac? Um, yes. It, for, it was for a brief bit a 
um, Mac plus Chromebook home, but we just got rid of the Chromebook. So um, it is, it is all Mac. Uh, all right. So uh, can you talk to us a little bit more about your tech setup, laptop, desktop, multiple? Sure. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, so some of this is actually in flow because what I noticed is I had um, for years, I had my like 2011 13 inch MacBook Pro that I would made up with my 27 inch Thunderbolt and my Apple Thunderbolt screen. But what I realized is that that actually made it less, made it harder for me to do any deep work because I had screens and real estate and I spent most of the time ironically, trying to get my text editors to be about the size that it needed it to be so that I wasn't looking left and right and up and down. So, you know, after months of messing with that and freezing it and doing different things, I'm like, I just need a smaller screen. What the hell is going on? Why am I working so hard? So I actually downgraded from a 27 or 28 inch Thunderbolt screen to a 21 and a half inch iMac, which is where, you know, um, I'm recording this from now. It's in the, um, hmm, how much story do I have there? I recently switched from having one office that I did everything in to now we have a recording studio and then we have the other room where, um, it's currently unnamed. It's probably going to either lab or library is going to stick, right? But it's actually where the deep work happens, where a lot of the business management and recording and everything else happens in here. And so in here is where the 21 and a half inch iMac is. That's where all the mics are. That's where all the cameras are. Um, that's where most of the business books move to because I'll be meeting with clients from this room as well. And sometimes I'll refer to those books and be like, oh yeah, like this happened here and you want to check this one out. So we have a recording, a studio slash business operation center and then a deep work room to be called, to be, to be named, but probably the library or lab. Um, in the lab, there's not a lot in there because we just recently made this move, but I can tell you it's not going to be anything bigger than a laptop. It may in fact be an iPad. Um, I still have my old 2011 MacBook Pro um, and that one lives downstairs and that's where I might do morning writing. So I actually write from the couch this morning or I write from the couch in the mornings um, <laughs> because... Um, it's going to sound funny, but whatever. That's what this episode is about. We have an aging cat that loves my lap, right? And so I'll go down and write with her in the morning because she's not going to be around us that much longer, right? And so we kind of do the morning thing there. And then around 10.30 or so is when I move to go to the, um, the studio where I'll be checking email and recording and interviews and everything like that. So um, I find that for me these days, Writing on a smaller screen or on a unipurpose device is actually the best way for me to sit down and do deep work. Um, whenever I get too much screen real estate, it's, it doesn't work very well for me. So um, I have to make my, my systems. Uh, it's the same thing with the smartphone, actually. Um, the more deep work I have to do or that I get to do, the dumber I make my systems the more that it's sort of creative flow recording this, that, and everything. And on Facebook, the more I'll go to smarter devices. So um, the iMac is set up so that it's um, just one of those things where I can look at multiple things and do multiple things at once. Um, it's got the notification set up on it, all that type of stuff. But my iPad and my, my phone and my computer pretty much has all notifications shut off. Don't, don't want them. Don't need it. That's what those devices are for. 
All right. So do you, when you, so the lab isn't set up yet, but when you move into the lab and you're doing your deep work potentially on this iPad, are you bringing the phone with you? Cause it, I mean, it doesn't have any notifications, right? So is it just to create that singular focus? Is that the intention? That's the intention. I'm to create a singular focus. Most of the time I will actually have my iPhone on do not disturb. Um, but there's a setting through there where certain people can pass through. And so Angela can always pass through, um, you know, Shannon um, can pass through, but they don't text unless they actually need something urgent. And so um, it's just set up so that it, it facilitates the work rather than gets in the way of the work. Awesome. Okay. Uh, do you, uh, how does it work when you're traveling? Do you, tr- do you attempt to get some of that thought work and writing done when you're traveling or do you just write that time period off? Uh, mobile ops. Um, so, It depends. So I've learned that I've learned not to plan on doing anything on an airplane because I typically don't get anything done. And so anything that I do get done on the airplane is bonus. And so it feels really good. And so I've, I've caught myself enough being like, Oh, I'm flying to New York to give the speaking thing. You've got six hours on the plane. I could get a lot done. And I don't, or I, <laughs> Or I'm the little dude in the middle, right? And I'm fighting, you know, I don't know. They, they like design these airplane seats. It's got to be like a small T-Rex without a leg or without a tail because you're like, Rawr! trying to type on something. It, is, it does not work for me, right? Um, and so I don't work on the airplanes that much anymore unless it's just one of those things. Unless If I'm first class, I can. That's a whole nother matter, right? Um, so Do you upgrade of, often? Depends on who's paying quite honestly, right? It depends on who's paying how long the trip is. So um, when it comes to that, what I try to do is batch all of my recording and all of that work so that that's done beforehand so that I can do the work off of my aging MacBook or even even my iPad. I just recently found a new app that I love on the iPad that um, might make it such that I could travel more with the iPad. And about three weeks ago, I'm excited about this. You can, you can tell <laughs> about three weeks ago, I realized that all of the apps that we use now are cross platform or in the cloud. So I don't actually need, um, I don't actually need my MacBook anymore for say for client meetings because zoom now records through the cloud. That's fantastic. All of our other apps are in the cloud. So I'm like, that's great. That's just one Less um, device that I have to take. That being said, um, I still don't find the web experience to be the same on the iPad and it's just slower and clunkier. And so um, since so much of my writing is done in web apps, I tend to still want to have my laptop with me. Um, But that's how that goes. Most of the office sort of work, the stuff that I would do in the studio, I batch and get done beforehand and then just say I'm not going to do it when I'm traveling because it sucks to do it. Um, and that's just the way that it's got to be. And then, um, when it comes to writing, so on and so forth, I, I, I actually do a lot of writing, not on the plane, but when I'm in a different environment. Um, and so there are some times where I'll take creative retreats and just go stay in a hotel for a couple of days, um, or, you know, do an Airbnb thing in the middle of, um, the Oregonian forest and, um, take a notepad and my laptop and, that's where most of the better work comes from, to be honest. Better writing, I should say, comes from. That's great. 
Um, Probably more so, detail than you wanted to know, but there you go. No, that's, I think that's exactly the detail, right? So we want to know about your process. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot there that's going really well. I think that um, there's some curiosity, or at least I'm curious, about failures, though. So failed experiments. You want to, could you share one with us? Um, yeah, well, I, so I have so many experiments where I failed that it's like, um, so earlier this year, I think I actually wrote a, wrote and talked a lot about it. I changed, um, the way that I organized my days. So I'm most creative and high energy in the morning from about six to 11. I was looking at my schedule and trying to optimize my schedule and noticed that if I changed and did more meetings in the morning, then that would give me more day in the afternoon and so worked it all out and ran that experiment for about three months and hated it. <laughs> hated it. Um, just because I was burning myself out, it wasn't fun. Like, so what I learned from that experiment was that um, when you've really anchored certain times of the day to be, um, well, I anchored those times to be those times of days because those were when I was the most creative using sort of our heat mapping idea and things like that. That's when I was the most creative. So I anchored that time for certain types of work. It's incredibly hard to de-anchor that and be flexible with that. So that was one that failed. A few years ago, I tried having client service weeks and momentum weeks or creative momentum weeks. And so one week on, one week off. Um, and I'll probably write a little bit more about this, but I found that at the end of a client week, I was incredibly happy, optimistic, just felt on top of the world. And at the end of a creative week, I was miserable. I was, I hated it. Right. I was mad. <laughs> things like that. And I was like, this is odd because my hypothesis was that having a full week of just time to focus on the deep work would be great. My experience, not so much. Um, and so, um, the, the messed up thing about this is like, um, a lot of people don't, because I don't talk a lot about our business model that much, unless people ask me, right. Um, about half of my day is spent in either client meetings or in interviews or, um, different meetings, right? um, mostly virtual meetings. So whenever I make a radical change to my schedule, like, like those two things, it takes about a good six to eight weeks before that change is really where it needs to be. And then if it doesn't work, it takes about six to eight weeks to get back to my old schedule. So changing schedules, especially meeting schedules is not a, um, it's not a light thing. And so, um, and part of that is because I've set defaults for when I meet with people. So I, I do all of these meetings at either 11, one or three. Um, again, defaults are really one of those things that, that, help me take care of myself and to help my brain, help make my brain space a lot either. So if you're doing 11, one and three and you need to change so that you do like nine o'clock in the morning, like I did earlier this year. So it goes nine, 11 and one. Well, that means you get a lot of clients and interviews and everything scheduled for the morning. Um, and you've got to get people put there. And it's just, it sounds like one of those easy things. If it were just that I was just in a creative business, I was just a writer. Cause then I have complete, um, I have autonomy over my schedule, but it's, it's my schedule is shared with other people. Um, when you have a schedule that's shared with other people, making these changes, it's not nearly as easy. Um, so that's it. Let's see. Last year I had an experiment where I bought an alpha smart Neo, which is just one of those old school word processors. 
um, that has like the, like, you know, the, the LCD screen that's about three inches long by an inch and a half wide um, or deep. Because my idea was like, okay, what if I just went to a straight up single focus writing device? What would happen? And I cranked through a lot more words, um, but it left me in the position where like I had multiple devices and I had to make a decision about what I was taking where, and then I had to get stuff off of it. So that one didn't work either. Um, earlier this year before our, um, before one of our cats died, I had the experiment of, um, wanting to post every day on PF and that did not work out. Um, so, um, actually I'm not sure what I realized through that experiment was that, um, I needed to broaden my, uh, recognition or what's the word I'm looking at. I wanted, I needed to broaden my perspective about what counted as content creation hmm. because um, I realized that, wait a second, between the podcast, between the different interviews that I was on, between stuff that I post on social media, between guest posts, between the newsletter, between all these things, I was actually shipping something every day, right? But I wasn't shipping a blog post every day. And so the, the basic question became, um, why am I so partial to blog posts? Okay. All right. So, so that was at first a failed experiment, but then you reframed it and it was a learning opportunity. Yeah. Well, so when you do experiments, sometimes the, the, the great thing about experiments is when you get good at doing them, you learn that it's about testing assumptions. It's not necessarily about the outcome. It's about the assumptions that you went in with. And for some reason or the other, my assumption when it came to the daily writing thing was that um, only certain things counted as, 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 um, content. And the other assumption that, um, that I had was that readers and the audience members would want content in certain ways. Um, okay. turned out that my first assumption about what was content needed to be, those horizons needed to be broadened. And the second thing was that I needed to actually talk to people right in the groups <laughs> that I'm in and so on and so forth and just figure out like, wait a second, people don't want like, 1500 word post every day. Like most of the time they're like, ah, too much. Like, no, 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 let's not do that. So I'm like, okay, so what's the right, um, given that much like my schedule, it's in a lot of ways, my, my creative energy is shared with other people, right? So what's the right amount that feeds me and nourishes me and keeps me doing my work, but also isn't just a deluge of content for people on the other side, because it's, it's actually when we look at the relationships that we're in as thought leaders and teachers and bloggers and things like that, if you're, con- if you're continually burning out your readers and they feel like, ah, I just can't keep up at a certain point, they're going to tune out. Right. right. So it's actually can be counterproductive, but on the other hand, you've got to produce at the rate that's right for you. Otherwise, um, well, we all have different cycles when it comes to that. Right. Well, one of the things you did when you're looking at that, um, you did, you, you reached out and you asked people and you gave some options. So you don't have to guess what's right for your audience, right? You can reach out to them and find out directly. Yeah. I mean, and so it's one of those, um, <laughs> you know, the thing that I'm working on most and I, it's been a journey, Jen, is learning to ask for help and learning to um, be vulnerable enough to um, admit that I don't know everything, which is really odd. What? That's yeah, so surprising. Right. Um, but it's like most of the time I'm like, I really don't know what's going on. Right. And I know that in these 
in, in the digital web that I live in, I know that expectations are going to change every 18 months or so, right? So if we went back every 18 months ago and say, what type of content would you like? You're going to get dramatically different answers from the same people, right? Right. And so, um, and there, you know, the reason I'm going to write about it and publish this, because I think there is something to consider about this, this dual relationship that we're in. On the one hand, as the creator, always going to your audience and saying, what do you want is a great way for you not to do your best work, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because what people sometimes want is not actually what you can or should produce, right? They're coming with their own frame of things. On the other hand, just dogmatically producing whatever it is that you want is not a particularly good way to build a creative enterprise, right? Um, And so finding that balance and what I realized to roll or to call back some of the things. What I realized from the Momentum Week sort of client service week um, experiment that I ran is I realized that in many ways I had lost the ability to um, provide my own positive feedback about my work, right? Mm. And at the end of a client week, the reason why I was happy and motivated and felt complete is because I had all week uh, through informal or through indirect and direct communication, people saying like, this is great. Like, this is what, this is really helpful. So on and so forth. So you have that all week and then you have a week of none of that. Right. And when your business depends upon, especially for the service side of things, it depends on people being happy with the service that you provide. So you go from a week of high satisfaction on both, on both parties to a week of either no satisfaction from your clients and maybe low satisfaction for yourself. If you, if you don't know how to really, give yourself that positive feedback, um, you'll end up at the end of the week being really frustrated, right? So part of going from that was like, okay, so how do I re, how do I change my relationship with my work so that um, I can go through longer periods of deep work and not be like Dostoevsky's man, and you know, I'm from underground, just be always pissed about why because that's not a way that we want to live our life, right? Is being pissed why we're creating something, right? That, that's a great way not to create anything. So right, right. Um, I'm still working on that, to be honest. Okay. Well, I'm sure you'll let all of us know when you figure out exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling it's going to be a while. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, one thing I want to make sure we have time to do is, um, is get in a handful of rapid fire questions. These are very critical to understanding you and how you work. Are you ready? All right, let's do this. Okay. Um, Star Wars or Star Trek? In a world where only one can exist, it would have to be Star Wars. Okay. Uh, Red wine, white wine, beer, scotch, or other? Other, hard cider. Hard cider. Okay. Uh, What kind of cuisine is your preference? Barbecue. So not vegetarian then. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I recently found out part of the self-care thing was that I was eating way too little protein for my body type and for just who I was. And so I, I, I doubled my protein and felt twice as good. So no vegetarian because I would have to eat way too much soy stuff or hummus or tofu and no, not doing it. All right. Um, favorite two-player tabletop game? tabletop game um that's the hardest question to ask a tabletop player i think so so do co-ops that have more than two people count as a two player so if it's like a two to four 
It has to be fun to play with two people. Right now, I'd probably go with Fireteam Zero. Okay. <laughs> That's good. A year from now, it might change. But right now, yeah. Fireteam Zero. Yeah. Uh, for what it's worth, mine used to be Pandemic, but my husband said that he's not my iPad, and I can't just tell him what to do. So... <laughs> <laughs> Minions. <laughs> um, okay, what kind of car do you drive? A Nissan Xterra 2008. Um, this is the second time we've had that model. Um, we we went to Nebraska with a with a 2000 or so um, Nissan Xterra. Sold it. Left Nebraska with a 2008 Nissan Xterra. It's a great car for us. Uh, what's your favorite meal of the day? Breakfast. What do you eat for breakfast? Oh. Um, Right now, it's actually smoothies. So there's there's the breakfast that I would have if I had someone make it for me, versus the breakfast <laughs> I have when I have to make it for myself. Right? No, that one. If someone else made it for you, what would it be? Oh, it would typically be um, if I really had my pick, it'd probably be like steak and um, like sautéed greens and um, some toast with honey on it. And now I'm getting really hungry. <laughs> yeah, that's what it would be. Okay. Oh, and um, roasted potatoes because I have a sore thing for potatoes. Thanks, mom. <laughs> and um, where where would you go for your um, ideal vacation, or where is your favorite vacation spot? Ooh, that's a hard one. Um, I haven't been back there for a while, but Greece has a home for me, right? That's probably the place where Angela and I had the best time. Um, as, as a couple. And so I would go back there, but that was in 2000 and the conditions in Greece now are a lot different. Um, other than that, I, I actually really love a lot of the weekend getaways that we do here in Oregon. Um, the mountain and woods and, and streams is definitely, is definitely home for me. Um, I compromise with Angela. Angela loves the beach. So she loves Hawaii. Right. And things like that. So I go and I, I don't know, it's one of those first world problems. Like, Oh, I'm going to go to Hawaii, but <laughs> it's not my ideal place. Right. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I kind of moved to the place that, that is my vacation place. All right. Well, thank you for um, that insight into your preferences. Before we wrap up, I have one more question for you. Okay. In, in true Charlie style, um, what unanticipated challenge are you dealing with right now? The biggest unanticipated challenge that I'm currently facing is the I'm trying to figure out how unanticipated it is. It is harder to let go of the manager aspects of my business than, um, than I would have imagined. I've, I've gone through this several times where I give up pieces, but I'm now at the point because of a fantastic team that we have in place to where I'm doing considerably less management. And um, that's sort of pushing me back into focusing more on deep work. So now I'm, I'm working on, you know, my dissertation again, I'm working on some stuff with social justice, I'm working on a book. And those are all long-term creative projects. And though my, my assumption was that like, I'm going to love it. It's going to be amazing to get back on those, but it's much like the momentum weeks and client weeks, right? Where it's like, uh, this is a different way of being in the world um, than what I have been for the last six to eight years. And so it's taking me more time to adjust to and lean into that possibility. Um, even accounting for the fact that I knew it was going to take me a long time. 
Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, for my part, I want to thank the Creative Campfire community because they supplied a lot of these questions. Um, I want to thank you for the time because I was just dying to know more about you and what makes you tick. So thanks for that. Um, this was a lot of fun. Thanks. Jen, thanks so much for doing this. And I want to give Miss um, Jen Laban a huge round of applause. This is, she's probably not going to like me to say this. This is actually our first podcast interview, right? And so um, people around me know not to volunteer to do things because I will say <laughs> that. So thanks for volunteering to do this. I hope the episode has been useful. Like, you know, I don't talk a lot about myself or I try not to at least because like it's my own skin. What's interesting about that? So apparently it's interesting to somebody. So there we go. Thanks so much, Jen. Thanks, Charlie. If you liked this episode and want to go more behind the scenes with me, you might want to check out episode 100 with Andrea Lee. And if you're digging the Creative Giant Show, I'd really appreciate it if you leave a rating or review on iTunes. If you're not familiar with how to do this, there's a walkthrough available on the podcast page on ProductiveFlourishing.com. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.